I had some real cognitive distortions around what it meant to be rejected, right? So I would, if I was rejected by somebody or I was broken up with by somebody, my mind would jump to, I'm never gonna find anyone else. I'm gonna be alone forever and I'm worthless. And so those are really unhelpful ways to view things. Hi everybody, this is Dr. Friedman and you're listening to Empowerment Solutions. Do you struggle with anxiety, stress, overwhelm, or a sense of feeling powerless and insecure? In this podcast, me and my expert guests share with you proven tips, tools, and strategies on how to overcome these struggles using the power of your conscious and subconscious mind so that you can live with greater joy, peace, and empowered authenticity. Hi, Alison. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I actually was surprised when I read the title of the book, which is uh, Overthinking About You, since, you know, it's you and uh, it's all about relationships. So how did you come up with that title? You know, originally I had a different title that, um, the, the original title for the book was actually crazy for you. And to me, it was a, an attempt to sort of reclaim the word crazy and sort of speak to the fact that so often I felt out of control in my relationships and that I like didn't have the ability to like have willpower in this area of my life that I did in others. But so I sold the book actually with that title, but then, you know, books take a long time. And just as I was learning more and more about um, mental health and I was in school for psychology, I realized that I just like didn't want to have the word crazy in the book title. Um, and that, you know, even though for me, I felt like I was using it in a certain way, it could very easily be misunderstood by the reader. And so it wasn't worth it for me for even one person to be hurt or offended by that. So then became the the months long journey of finding another title. Um, <laughs> Got it. And actually overthinking about you was like the next one I suggested to my editors. But I think that, you know, there's a whole chain of command and it, I ended up having to like brainstorm so many different ones, but ultimately they came around to overthinking about you and um, agreed to it. And I love it. I think it works even better. I think it works perfect because your story is exactly that, that you were overthinking your relationships. And, and is that something that, you know, was dear to your heart? So you wanted to share what you have learned along the journey and, and what kind of challenges did you face? I mean, challenges that I think a lot of viewers and listeners can probably relate to. Yeah, so I've had OCD since I was four years old. So mental health has always been a big part of my life. And I also really struggled, especially in the dating realm, like nothing could, you know, upset my mental stability more than romantic rejection, heartbreak, relationship issues. Um, I was obsessed with being in a relationship. And I noticed a few years ago that there had been like this shift where I was actually kind of showing up in a different way when it came to romantic relationships. And I was sort of finally being the person that I, I had wanted to be all along. Um, and I also, you know, I came up on the internet. I, I used to work at Buzzfeed Video. I have a YouTube channel. I, I had been sharing so much of myself with my audience for years. And a, a large part of that was always the mental health, was always the dating. And I thought, oh, well, people have always seemed to respond to that. They've always seemed to like sort of peeking behind the curtain of what it is like to, you know, live with 
with mental illness and still try to have a happy full life. And I thought, um, okay, well, this feels like a something worth sharing and it feels worth sharing in a bigger way than, you know, just a YouTube video. And so I sort of, um, pitched the idea of the book and, and had a really great reception to it and then realized I had to write it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. It's a really, really great book and it's fun to read it. Now, what would you say are is the biggest difference between who you were before in dating and then when you said, wow, I'm showing up in ways uh, I actually wanted to show up. Give us like three typical examples of things you used to do and now you're doing them differently. Yeah, so, you know, I think one of them was I had some real cognitive distortions around what it meant to be rejected, right? So I would, if I was rejected by somebody or I was broken up with by somebody, my mind would jump to, I'm never going to find anyone else. I'm going to be alone forever and I'm worthless. And so those are really unhelpful ways to view things, you know, like it's going to shake your mental health a lot more if, when you get broken up with, if that's where your mind goes, instead of just going to a place of this sucks, this hurts, I'm grieving this person, but ultimately I know I'll be okay. Um, and so that was a big shift for me. And also, you know, learning to, to like myself <laughs> helped a lot, you know? So I noticed that in the past where maybe someone wasn't that into me, that that wasn't a deterrent. It was more like, oh, let me try to convince them to like me. And I noticed that instead if somebody wasn't liking me, I found that to be off-putting. <laughs> I was sort of like, oh, well, what's wrong with you that you're not excited about me, you know? <laughs> like, and even though obviously everyone has every right to be interested or not interested in somebody, I was no longer drawn to people who weren't interested in me. And that was a really wonderful shift as well. So that sounds like that you really had to also change your relationship with yourself. Absolutely. That was the that was the first step. That was what was so important. And, you know, the, the premise of the book um, is really that, you know, dating is always risky. It's always scary. But when you struggle with your mental health, it's it's kind of extra important to sort of have these safety nets set up for yourself so that you can engage in dating and it won't be quite as dangerous because you, you know, the way that you look at it and the coping skills that you have are kind of already in place so that if things do go awry, you'll, you know, you'll be in pain, but you'll be okay. Now, a lot of the things that are written in the book really affect all of us. I mean, the fear of rejection that, uh, you know, at, at times obsessing about a person that doesn't really clearly communicate. Uh, there are so many topics that I think everyone can really benefit from having uh, having more insights on how to navigate through it. So the thing that I'm always a little bit hesitant about hesitating about is the idea of illness. Do you see yourself as ill? Or do you see yourself as someone who has special ways to communicate or think or go through life? I know that everybody has a different relationship to their mental health. But for me, it is really helpful to externalize my OCD and my anxiety. Uh, it has been very helpful for me to view them as things that are separate from me, that they do not define me. They are not my personality, but they are just something that I live with and have to deal with. Um, because, you know, it, it's like, 
not to compare to physical illness, but like, you know, I, I don't want to have OCD. <laughs> like I don't want, I don't want to have my compulsions. Um, I don't want to be living in a state of heightened anxiety. And, and I've gotten my anxiety a lot much more under control than my contamination OCD. But yeah, like for me, it is incredibly helpful to view it as a disorder and to allow myself the grace to say, I am, I am mentally ill and that's okay. I'm still able to have a wonderful full life, but I am struggling with these things. And, and to pretend that I'm not struggling with them would make it harder to give myself the self-compassion that I need in order to live with them. But you said something very important which is that it's not your identity. And I think that's a big change in thinking because so many people that I'm working with that were diagnosed and have an anxiety disorder or have OCD, that's what they think they are. And just mm -hmm. making that distinguishing step of saying, you know, this is something I know I'm working through and I'm dealing with and I'm whatever, but it's not me, there's so much more to me. Do you oh, feel definitely. that that is a challenge in general when we are having, you know, mental, emotional health issues that we think we are broken and that we already wonder, does really anyone want to be with us? Is that really something that anyone can handle? Is, is that something that you have observed? Definitely. And, and, you know, a big premise of the book is that even if you struggle with these things, it doesn't mean that you can't have a wonderful, healthy partnership. And I think a lot of times for people who have struggled with their mental health, they sort of feel like I should take what I should what I can get in the romantic department, that if anyone is willing to be with me, then then that's that's the best that I can hope for. And I'm really trying to encourage people to recognize that no, like they are allowed to be just as picky. They're allowed to look for just as good of a relationship as anyone else. And also the just through the sheer history of having to work through these struggles, through having to deal with your mental health, you probably have tools and insight that a lot of other people don't have that can actually make you a much better partner. Um, and people that I think really looking at it more as a strength-based approach can be really helpful. So right, absolutely, I agree. Now, one of the things that, you know, just at the beginning of dating can be the ideas. When do, I, when do I tell my potential partner that I have these struggles? And you have written some really interesting things about that. So that's like definitely the, the number one thing that people ask me about. Um, and I have to say, you know, that this book is also filled with a lot of expert interviews. Like it wasn't just me saying, oh, this is what I think, an unlicensed person, <laughs> you know? So um, such of the, so much of the valuable information I was getting was from mental health professionals and um, dating coaches and couples and sexologists and all of that. And, and so in that chapter, I, I found it really helpful where my experts were basically saying, you know, it's not so much about what timeline you're on with this person, but instead what stage of the relationship you're at. So, you know, there are people who casually date and maybe it's their seventh time hanging out with somebody, but they still don't know anything about that person. Like they don't know what their parents do. They don't know if their parents are even alive. Like they, they, it's been very surface level, which is totally fine. But if you're in that place, you don't need to disclose, you know, your most vulnerable mental health history. But then there are other relationships where your first date is five hours long and you're already like getting into things and maybe you're older and in your 30s or 40s. And so there's less there's less um, small talk and you're just kind of diving into things faster. 
So it's really just like noticing, okay, is this person sharing real things with me? Are we starting to actually open up about our lives in a deeper way? And if so, then that's really a good time to sort of start to talk about these things. But a big thing I had to realize was you want to share from a place of control. You don't want to share compulsively. And so sharing compulsively is sharing because you're very afraid of how they're going to react. You feel like you have to get it all out on the table. You, it's almost like a word vomit. But if you can instead view it as I'm in control of this information, I'm in control of when I'm going to tell it, what atmosphere I'm going to tell it in, because let's be honest, shouting, you know, I deal with suicidal ideation in a crowded bar isn't probably ideal, you know, like you want to think about the environment that you're you're talking to this person in. And then also really the energy of your disclosure, because I think if you disclose, yeah, I deal with a lot of anxiety. It's a problem. Um, it's caused issues in my other relationships. And I'm really worried how you're going to respond. Like, you know, that that's that's a lot for somebody to take in versus, yeah, I've actually dealt with anxiety for most of my life. But, you know, I'm in treatment for it and I have some good coping skills. Yeah, I still need to work on it, but I'm I'm in, I'm handling it and it's something I know I need to address. Because that lets your partner know that they're just learning about you instead of them saying, oh, this is something that I now need to take on, which is two very different things. And it's again what you said before, it's not identifying you. It's saying mm -hmm. this is a part of my life, but it's not all of who I am. And so that's a much more confident energy and not like an apologetic energy about it. And but that brings up, of course, you know, you say it and then you expect the rejection to happen or the judgment to happen. And there is definitely also some there are some OCD patterns about rejection in general that you uh, address and how to you know, just calm yourself down about rejection. So what would you recommend or what did you find the experts recommend about that? You know, rejection, especially when you don't have a clear answer as to why is like gasoline for anxiety, right? Because then your brain is like, I need clarity. I need certainty. Let me figure out exactly why this happened and what I could have possibly done to have prevented it from happening. And that is not a good game to play with yourself. You know, um, we kind of call it the what if thoughts, you know, like what if I hadn't said that? What if I had said this? What if I had worn this instead of that? And that's the stuff where your anxiety just latches onto it. And you just find yourself in like a hamster wheel going around and around with the what ifs. And so I have found it really helpful to just sort of accept your reality like to have an, an acceptance-based approach where, okay, this person broke up with me. I maybe do not have the clarity that I wish that I had about it, but in this moment, this relationship is over and what now? Like what, what do I do now to heal and to grow and to move on with my life instead of hyper fixating on the what ifs? Because even if you solve it, you won't ever know if you solved it because you're not talking to that person anymore. You'll you'll never have a sense of I figured it out because they didn't want you to know or maybe they didn't even know themselves. So this like sense of like clarity or, or rewriting history does us such a disservice and instead being able to say to yourself, I might never know what happened and and I can still live my life without that information, I think is really helpful. And have you ever in your own experience been rejected? And if so, years later, you realize it was actually kind of mutual because this person wasn't a good fit? 
you know, I it's hard for me to to look at things like, oh, I dodged a bullet or oh, I, you know, thank God I'm not with them. I mean, sometimes I have some of that, but a lot of times it feels more true to me just to be like, wow, I wish that had worked out, but it hadn't. And mm. and now what? Um, you know, while I was writing this book, I I got engaged, which was, you know, the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And then six months later, my fiance walked out on me with like no explanation um, aside of, you know, something is missing. And so that was obviously the the worst breakup of my life in a lot of ways. It was the most significant relationship I'd ever had. We were in engaged to be married. Um, I did not see it coming at all. Um, but the way that I handled it was completely different than any other breakup, even these much smaller breakups, because I kind of did all of those things that we were talking about. I mean, I could very much have fixated on, you know, what was the something? <laughs> like, what, what did I do wrong? But instead, I, I realized that I couldn't fix a problem that my partner wasn't sharing with me. And I, and I knew enough about myself to be able to say if he had brought his doubts and concerns to me earlier and had a willingness to work on them, I would have shown up. But he didn't let me do that. He just ripped the rug out from under me and, and left with like no attempt to work on things, no attempt to communicate with me. And, and that's not my fault. And so the fact that I didn't blame myself for, you know, the disillusion of my broken engagement, I think was like, oh, all of the things in this book are true and are helpful. <laughs> No, I mean, that is such a wonderful way of handling it. And it's really something also where we have to remind ourselves of a rejection doesn't mean it's reality, that we are not good enough. Maybe right. there was something missing for that person. But again, like you said, I would be happy to give it if I would knew what it is. And maybe I wouldn't be able to give it because it's not me. And so the rejection is simply a feedback of I'm not fitting into your expectations, but that doesn't make me any different than I am. So obviously you had a pretty healthy self relationship already at that time when you had this broke up and it didn't break you. And uh, that's kind of, I'm glad. <laughs> now there is also the other breakup thought that is about breaking up with that person where you're constantly wondering, what if I break up? What if I don't like this person anymore? What if the kiss is actually not the way it's supposed to feel? That was also a really interesting uh, chapter in your book about that. So a lot of people struggle with this. And, and that for some people, it's called like relationship OCD. Some people more, maybe more gravitate towards just relationship anxiety. But it is this constant wondering of like, is this right? Like either is, am I in the right relationship or does my partner love me enough? Like, you know, it can kind of be partner focused or relationship focused and it's exhausting. It is just quite, you know, simply really tiring and draining to have these thoughts all the time about your relationship. And so I tried to sort of, you know, with the help of, of the experts sort of provide some tools for just sort of being able to notice those thoughts and to sort of wonder, you know, are these valid concerns or is this maybe more my my ROCD or my relationship anxiety? And one of the things that's hard is like sometimes it's hard to know and like you have to be kind of OK with that uncertainty. But some some signals that it's maybe, you know, actually a valid concern is something that if you bring it to your partner, they can address it. Right. So if you say to your partner, I'm really worried that we don't spend enough time together. 
they can spend more time with you. <laughs> but if you say to your partner, I'm worried that in 30 years, we won't have anything else to say to each other. What are they going to do with that? <laughs> you know, that, right. that sort of signals that maybe it's more of an ROCD thought that is like future focused or focus more in hypotheticals or focus more in like something being quote unquote right or enough, which are things that aren't actually able to you know, define or tangible. Um, and so being able to say, oh, that's a thought, maybe that's true, but I, I'm choosing to show up in this relationship today. I want to be here today. Um, and so thank you for these concerns, but I'm not going to spend the next two hours worrying about them. And I think that's a really important uh, decision to make because, you know, this, I mean, I always think there are you know, these parts inside of us that just want to make sure that we don't get hurt or, that uh, you know we are not falling uh, into the settling with someone when there is something better maybe out there something that's much more real and uh, and just you know saying i'm choosing right now to be present and i'm choosing to focus on what feels good and right i think that's a uh, very very helpful advice because it it can also be i don't know if you experienced this but that conflict where you on the one hand you are alone and then you want to be in a relationship and you go dating and you obsess about it and then you're in the relationship and then there's like no no i don't know that's this right maybe i'm gonna get hurt maybe it's better to get out and then you get out again and so it's back and forth and back and forth and that is also something that you know is like a a game that uh, somehow you can play with yourself which unfortunately always ends up in in being completely unhappy because no matter whether you're in or out of relationship you will feel dissatisfied and i think that's what you just said just choosing to be in it and see where it goes and looking maybe also for the things that feel good it's really important and that's something you also addressed was the whole idea of perfectionism it has to be the perfect relationship the perfect you know partner because social media says this is what you're supposed to have that's what you deserve and you had some really good suggestions about that yeah so i think so many people think that when they know they know and so if they don't have this strong sense of this is it this is the one then it must not be but um shiva rajahi who's a wonderful therapist she has this idea of a good enough relationship where basically if you have a certain amount of compatibility with another person, you can make a relationship work where you're both happy and fulfilled. And, you know, um, and, and really just recognizing that we have these unrealistic standards for romantic relationships. We think that this person should be everything for us. We think we should be attracted to them at all times. We think that our sex lives should be constantly going up instead of having peaks and valleys. And, um, you know, the reality of a day-to-day long-term relationship, it's very rare for it to actually hit all of those markers. And so then when you're there and you're going, but this isn't what TV told me then you're like, well, this must be wrong. I, mu I could possibly do better. Instead of saying, oh, actually, a long-term partnership is a very complex thing that is going to have many different phases and stages. And you're honestly going to have like probably multiple relationships with that same person over time and, and sort of allowing yourself to not have to live up to this Hollywood standard of what a, a good relationship is and instead say, does this person respect me? Do I respect this person? Do I feel supported by them? Are they supporting me? And then, you know, having 
having a clear set of deal breakers, but also making sure that there's also another section, which is like, I don't want this, but I can live with it. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think we need to expand the list. Like a lot of times it's like things we things we need and things we can't have. But I try to encourage readers to expand it to things we need, deal breakers, things we want, but are okay not having, and things we don't necessarily want, but are okay having, you know, like a go-to example for me is like, my, my boyfriend loves baseball. It's like obsessed with baseball. I, I prefer if he wasn't, but it's fine that he is, you know, <laughs> like I'm not a sports person, so I wasn't looking for a sports person, but he happens to be, and that's fine. You know, that's not a deal breaker for me. Um, and I think just sort of being more specific with those lists where, you know, kind of narrowing down the deal breakers instead of like, oh, if they don't like, if they don't like hip hop, then I can't be with them. Maybe you can, maybe they just don't come to hip hop concerts with you. Um, and so being more flexible in our ideas of what we're, what actually matters in, in a healthy long-term relationship versus what we're, what we've been told to believe matters. But especially when you are going into the more obsessive spirals of thinking, you can make things matter, even though they don't really matter that much. So how do you bring it back to a more grounded place, you know, where you really say, like, don't worry, even if right now you feel like he's a bad kisser, it's still something that can be good enough because there are so many other things. So how can you pull yourself away from just focusing on the little stains in the carpet? I think therapy is a is a really important step. Uh, unfortunately, it's not accessible to a lot of people. So saying that is like the go-to standard. I mean, it is the go-to standard, but I also recognize it's not a possibility for a lot of people. Um, so if that's not a possibility for you, um, Shiva Rajahi actually wrote a wonderful book called Relationship OCD that's all about this. So that might be really helpful to sort of do some psychoeducation for yourself so that you are better able to identify those thoughts. And and for me, it's always been so helpful just to be able to, to label things, right? To be able to label, oh, this is an OCD thought. Like mm. that doesn't make the OCD thought go away, but it does take away some of its power because I recognize that it is not the same thing as a fact. Um, and I do not need to give it the same weight in my brain as a fact. So I think just getting in touch with how these things are showing up for you and then being able to label them in your brain can be really helpful because then you don't make that rash decision. And to also kind of in increase your tolerance for distress, right? And say, oh, it is distressing to have these thoughts when I'm making out with my partner, but I love my partner. I see a future together. And so I'm going to tolerate this distress because it is worth it is also a, a helpful approach sometimes. Definitely. And I really think that uh, this stepping out of making some kind of a quick decision and saying, let's do it more long term and see all these aspects of the relationship and don't focus just on one. It's not necessarily how we operate these days where our intention span is very small and our desire to have instant resolutions very high, but uh, it's really the best in a relationship. And to add to your list of, you know, how to evaluate a relationship, I do also feel there is something intangible that we cannot really describe that makes a relationship, you know, worth really going through the ups and downs. And that is this feeling of 
somehow feeling you can be yourself with that person. You know, you, you don't have to hide. You are not walking on some kind of invisible eggshells or you'd censor yourself. Maybe this person doesn't fulfill all your needs, but there is something that you feel safe around that person. For me, this feeling at home, uh, as I describe it, and having a sense of I understand the other person's essence, I kind of see and get who they are, even though they have all these idiosyncrasies that may drive me nuts. But there is still so much about that person that really makes me feel drawn that that makes a big difference and we cannot always define it as easily so it's just also an invitation sometimes to listen to your heart and not to your little thoughts rambling up there about you know what's good or what's not good enough or something like that definitely and i think you're speaking kind of to, to the chemistry of it all you know like some people you you do just find yourself able to be relaxed around and i think sometimes people view that as a sign that it's not a romantic spark. But for me, I think when you find someone you can feel relaxed and comforted and, and at peace around, even if you're used to chaotic relationships, you shouldn't, you should still view that as a, as a good thing. That, that is the thing that will get you through decades of annoyances and hardships and like long days. And, you know, being able to feel at home with this person is so valuable. And I'm glad that you brought up the word chemistry in another context, because it's so often seen as sexual chemistry. It's like, wow, it's so hot around this person and it's missing then and then it's all wrong. And there is another way of feeling this connection or chemistry that is not just about, you know, the passion and the kitchen counter. But that's also something you write about, you know, how sexuality can be an issue when you're struggling with your mental health and tell us a little bit about that. So I think that, you know, that chapter was really important for the book, even though I did not want to write it, um, because it, I think we're, we have this belief that, that, you know, sexuality is separate from the rest of our lives. And it is sort of this magical realm where none of our issues that exist elsewhere will show up. But the reality is if you struggle with anxiety or OCD or depression outside of the bedroom, it's going to show up in the bedroom. And, and I think that a lot of people don't know that. And so that when they have that experience, it feels incredibly isolating and there is a lot of self-judgment around it. And so I really wanted to just sort of destigmatize that and, and make it known that like, yeah, like if you have anxious thoughts all day long, you're probably going to have anxious thoughts during sex too. Like that's, that's just what would happen, you know, maybe not every time, but it is likely to pop its head out, um, especially, you know, during the time of day when you're the most vulnerable and intimate, at, you know, that's when anxiety is worried about you, you know, um, and so sort of just normalizing that the struggle will continue in the bedroom. And that doesn't mean that it's not a good relationship. That doesn't mean it's not a good fit, but that you might just need to do a little more work and have a, a couple more tough conversations than, you know, other people who might not struggle with this. And I think that's a really important topic because, as you said, there is a lot of self-judgment also going with it. There is a lot of misunderstanding of what is a healthy sex life and what is not. And, and I think there is also, in general, a, a, a maybe a discrepancy with gender. You know, what are the expectations of a man and a woman just besides all of the other things we just talked about? So it's a, it's a really good chapter and uh, it's really important just to explore a little bit more, especially if you want to have a, 
a healthy and fulfilling relationship. Now, one thing that you also mentioned is when you are actually dating someone who struggles with OCD and anxiety, there are certain things that you shouldn't be doing and certain things that would be good to do. So, so what are your suggestions there? You know, these disorders manifest so differently in everyone. And I think that that's why it's not enough to just say to your partner or potential partner, I have anxiety or I have OCD. Like that's a good starting point. But as you, you know, get deeper into a relationship, really letting it be clear what that means, how that manifests for you, and then also what you have found to be helpful in the past. And I think another big misconception we have is that the perfect partner will know how to care for us perfectly without us giving them any guidance. But why? Like that doesn't make any sense. Why would they instinctively know this very specific thing about a completely different person from them, you know? So filling your partner in on like, okay, when I'm having a really anxious day, what is helpful for me is for you to take care of dinner because having to think about what I have to plan for dinner on top of my all my other anxieties, that that will really help me out. But if you don't say that, maybe your partner will come home with flowers but you were like, flowers, I need dinner, you know, like, <laughs> and, and so being able to express, you know, these needs and, and the ways that you feel loved and cared for when you're struggling. And then it's the partner, it's the, on the partner to then listen to that, to not say, oh, but I think you should try, you know, like if your partner has figured out what works for them, that's great. Listen, <laughs> like show up in the way that they've kind of advised you to show up instead of like being like, yeah, but when I have anxiety, I find it helpful to blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's great, but it's not what they find helpful. Um, so really looking to each other to fill each other in instead of just like expecting you to instinctively know. And it's really wonderful for the partner to be told this is what helps because I know a lot of people that do uh, have partners that have some struggles with anxiety, OCD, feel powerless because they cannot totally understand where they're coming from. They cannot totally relate to that. And then they're like, oh my God, you know, just watching him or her struggle and I'm just sitting there and wish I could make it go away. So having this sense of, yes, I can be of help. I, I am actually feeling more empowered. I'm a part of this journey. Uh, speak up, say what you need, and uh, and it's gonna definitely make a better relationship for it. I mean, if your partner, of course, is up for that. And I don't think we can ever say that we are responsible for how the other person is feeling. So we cannot put this on us and say like, okay, I need to make someone feel better or make them feel that they have to rescue us but we can always use each other's support. And sometimes the best support we get is to be left alone. Just like, you know what? I'm gonna just go a little bit in my room here and take a time out. Please don't talk to me. And that can be <laughs> as helpful as the, making dinner. Totally, and, and I think you really, you know, hit the nail on the head that it is your mental health. And I give the caveat of some people are struggling to the point where they need inpatient treatment, where they, they can't help themselves, but if, if you aren't in that place, your mental health is is your responsibility and it is not your partner's responsibility. So if you're someone who is seeing your partner struggle, it sucks to see them struggle and, and you want to, you know, be a helper, but it is not your job, like you said, to fix it. And I think releasing yourself from that responsibility 
also makes it easier to just be in that relationship because it's like, okay, well, they've got to do these things to take care of themselves and I'm, I'm here to help if they need it, but I trust that they're on top of this is, is, can be really, you know, freeing instead of like, I've got to fix this. I have to fix them. Why are they crying? It's like, it's okay if they're crying, they can handle having a cry. Yeah. And it doesn't make you hide your crying because you feel like it's upsetting the other person. It allows you to be yourself and that in itself brings you closer. You know, if you can trust your partner to be your worst self without having your partner run out of the house screaming, then you know, okay, he or she can handle it. It's okay. I can actually show all sides of me. And that's really the most beautiful sign of trust that we can give each other. And so, yes, that's uh, that's an important part. Now, one last question I have, which is really something I think people that have been struggling with obsessive thoughts have probably experienced quite often, which is slatching onto that person that is obviously wrong, maybe even abusive, maybe even a psychopath. But somehow the obsessive mind cannot let go of the idea that this is the right person. And if they only do this or only do that, and maybe then and and lose themselves in that process. What would you recommend to people that are obviously suffering in a relationship that somehow becomes more and more disempowering and, as I said, hurtful and abusive and still not being able to let go of the idea that this is the princess or the prince that they need to somehow have at all cost. You know, I don't feel qualified enough to talk about abusive relationships. Um, I think that it is, I think I'm not even a therapist and I think there are a lot of therapists who aren't even well equipped to deal with abusive relationships. It is such a different thing and it, and it requires so much experience and insight and it, it, it is so complex um so I, I will maybe change the scenario to it's not an abusive relationship okay. but it's obvious that the person isn't that interested in absolutely you, or, or not taking, the right person for or just whatever not the reason. right person for yes. you right um and so you know i think you know, I was obsessed with someone for years of my life where I for for we we were on and off. And even when I was in other relationships, there was always this sense of like, oh, this is where I, I, I told myself on this narrative, right, that that we're meant to be together, that this is the hard part before we get together that we tell everyone, oh, look at all these years where we were on and off. And now this was always meant to be. I think it made me feel, you know, he was someone with commitment issues. And I think it made me feel like if I could get him to commit with to me, then that meant something about my worth. Then that meant that I was really special because no one else had been able to get him to, to do that. Um, spoiler, he never committed to me and that's fine. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so I think, I think like this is sort of like pulling from narrative therapy, but like examining the story that you're telling yourself around it. And are you sort of buying into this kind of fairy tale and is it based in reality and is telling yourself this story even serving you, you know, sort of starting to poke back at these thoughts saying, okay, but what if he's not the right person? What if this is the story of you dated the, the, the frog before the prince? Maybe what if he's actually, or they are actually, or she's actually the frog, you know, sort of challenging the, the really strong narrative that you've latched onto. And it won't shift right away, but starting to poke holes um, and say, maybe, 
maybe this gut feeling I have isn't actually right um, might be helpful. Now, when you were dating that person, were you having a not so great relationship with yourself at that time? Oh, yeah. And I was and I had a horrible relationship with him. I, I was so obsessed with getting him to commit to me. I was so afraid he was going to cheat on me. I, I was I was my worst self I've ever been in any relationship. And yet I told myself that he was the one for me. I mean, that's a thing where we have to also take responsibility sometimes and realize, just like you said, I wanted to feel special about myself. And not only from my experience, but also from experience with clients, I know that we're looking for those people to prove something to ourselves, to get from them the validation or the sense of we are of value because we haven't really found it within ourselves. So we want the impossible from someone. We are coming to those relationships empty handed because we don't feel like that great, but we hope to get somehow a basket of love and adoration. And often, interestingly, at least that's what I observe, and I certainly have been doing exactly the same thing. We're picking the people that really have nothing to give, either because they're withholding or they're insecure themselves or commitment phobes. So it's a never ending self-fulfilling prophecy of disappointment. So what you just said at the beginning of having to really as a foundation, change your relationship with yourself. And that's how it's always tried. I know how many people are rolling their eyes right now about, you know, you have to love yourself first because before you love somebody else, Maybe it's tried and maybe it's not totally true that you reach the self-love to the level where you say, oh, I'm so full. Now I can share my love with somebody else. But just having a more peaceful and accepting relationship, wouldn't you agree that is important before you go out and go into a relationship with somebody else? Definitely. And, and I say, I don't think it's true that you have to love yourself before someone else can love you. There's plenty of people in relationships who don't love themselves and their partner loves them. I, I, my question is, is it a healthy relationship? Yes. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, I, and I also think it's not just learning to love yourself. For me, it was learning to like myself. Mm. It was like learning to just like enjoy my own company, to find myself funny, to find myself interesting to like want to hang out with myself was also like a, a big shift too. So I think it is like, it, it's more nuanced than just like, you must love yourself to have any sort of life. It's like, what is your internal world? Because you can do all of these things without loving yourself. You can be married for 30 years and hate yourself, but are you enjoying it? Probably not. I love this hanging out with yourself and having a good time because then you never really feel alone. I mean, yes, it's nice to have someone else around, but you're not feeling this desperation. And uh, I can imagine you are really cracking yourself up from time to time. And that's just wonderful. <laughs> I think most of us should do that more often. It's definitely healthy. So Alison, how can people find your book and learn more about you? So the book I think is is overthinking about you um, and it, it should be available pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, for international listeners, I know that um, it's on Kindle and also the Strand Bookstore in New York ships internationally and has signed copies. And then online, I'm at Allison Raskin. I also have um, a mental health Instagram account called Emotional Support Lady, which is also a Substack by the same name. And then I have a weekly podcast called Just Between Us if you want to tune in with me once a week. 
Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Elton, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I hope you're going to come back because there is so much more to talk about. It's such an important topic. And it is really not a topic lots people talk about. So this was really, really wonderful that you wrote this book. Congratulations. And thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, thank you so much. You've made my day. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.